Hello, you're listening to No Such Word as Can't with me, Hazel McBride. I was always told growing up that there was no such word as can't, and I genuinely believe that that mentality instilled a belief in me that anything was possible if I just set my mind to it. As someone who started off with a seemingly impossible dream and somehow made it my reality, I want to help more people achieve their goals by giving them actionable advice, as well as sharing stories from others who have done the same. Today I get to sit down and talk with none other than Joel Alves, who is doing all things conservation, veterinary, living the epic life in South Africa, and I'm so excited to chat to him. Welcome to the podcast, Joel. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me, Aizel. I really appreciate it. I am so excited. So um, what first inspired your love of wildlife? I don't know. It's actually a tough one to pin it down to something, you know, solid. From a mm. young age, I was always sort of interested in all the wildlife documentaries and that, you know, instead of the the Disney movies, I always mm. found myself watching Nat Geo documentaries. All the, all the early David Attenboroughs, I think, played a big part. My parents used to have the old VHS like videos of of all of Attenborough's first stuff and I sort of just got sucked in by that eh? At, but it's really it's a strange one because we never overly visited wildlife parks or anything like that when I was younger so yeah it sort of just materialized all on its own yeah and did you grow up in South Africa yes I grew up here in in South Africa in a in a small town called Bridestrom which which no one will know on a map anyway <laughs> What is it like growing up um, in South Africa with regards to to wildlife? You know, I think for the majority of people who live, you know, in Europe, certainly for me, yeah, we get to see exotics in safari parks, for example, but it's not like we can go 30 minutes down the road and, and stumble across lion or, you know, zebra or anything. What What is that like? No, so I think a lot of it is... Um... Yeah, what you what you might see in social media or on the news or whatever it is 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 not really the reality here in in mm. South Africa and almost across the continent. I mean, we have you know our general big cities and the outlying areas where you still have to travel a little bit to to get any of your big game species. You know, mm. most of them are in protected areas and and formal reserves. If they're not in a formal reserve here in South Africa, then they then they have probably escaped. So if you are seeing a lion <laughs> while you're driving around, it's probably not supposed to be there. Um, what is quite nice, I mean, where we grew up was on a sort of 16 acre little small holding or plot, uh, you know, about 45 minutes from Johannesburg, which is obviously our, our capital and main city, mm. um, or rather not capital, but main city. And, you know, on those small holding areas, there is a bit of free roaming wildlife, but it's nothing, you know, massive in terms of, of lions or elephants or anything like that. It's a lot of antelope species, a lot of your small carnivores. Um, there are leopards that sort of cruise around. They're sort of ubiquitous throughout the country. They they can utilize a lot of different habitats and that. So, you know, if you're exceptionally, exceptionally lucky, um, which we were once when we were mountain biking in our area, we we bumped across a leopard, but it doesn't, <laughs> doesn't really happen like, you know, lions in our garden-esque kind of vibe that you sometimes see being thrown around social media and that. Mm. I find that so funny, you know, coming from Scotland, we we don't have any predators in the country at all uh, and it's something that always makes me laugh when you see you know videos I, one of my friends was hiking um in Alaska and ended up seeing a bear 
and you just talking yeah. about mountain biking and being like, oh yeah, we just stumbled across the leopards. You know, it's that's so foreign to me. It's amazing. Absolutely. Look, you guys have Highland cows, and those things are quite dangerous <laughs> as well. So I think, uh, yeah, and you've got cold, so you've got your own problems. Mm, yeah, I think there's quite a difference between fluffy cows um, and uh, and I mean they do have horns, but yeah. <laughs> If you leave them alone, they're they're probably going to be fine. So, you know, growing up in such a rich um, country with so much nature around you, did you quite quickly decide that you would like to be a vet or did you entertain other career ideas? Yeah, no. So actually, I uh, I wasn't one of those, funny enough, that, um, you know, thought I'd be a vet from the get-go. I, mm -hmm. I was very sort of sports mad. I played a lot of sports in high school and... Mm -hmm. I then took a gap year and, and went and backpacked through Europe. And before I traveled, my parents insisted that I, you know, apply for university to ensure that my single gap year didn't turn into like three or four. <laughs> so I, you know, sort of being a typical guy, I jumped on the website and, you know, sort of just for what you could study and came across sports science. And I thought, well, that's, that must be the greatest thing ever. You can literally study sports. So, mm. you know, applied, applied for that, um, got in. And then sort of within four or five months of, of starting uni, I was living with a lot of digs mates and that that were studying zoology and ecology and, mm. and just a lot of wildlife stuff, essentially. And, you know, when we were having, you know, everyone studying together around the same table, I found myself, you know, looking across at their books a lot more than the stuff that I was doing. So it sort of reminded me of that that first passion. Um, and I ended up changing after the first year to a, a Bachelor of Sciences in Zoology. And then through that Bachelor of Sciences, I, I ended up actually applying for for veterinary, um, more as more as like a chance thing. And uh, yeah, I was fortunate enough to to get accepted and and get in. And now looking back, I mean, it's yeah, it's crazy to think that uh, I don't think I could have done too much else. And what was it like going from, you know, oh, I'm going to go and study sports sci sports science, and then deciding actually, I've ended up in in vet school. What was that like? Yeah, I, I mean, to be honest, it was probably the greatest thing ever because, you know, vet school is is seven years of, of studying mm. and we had a, a really fantastic um, access to to sports there where we were. So, you know, we, we were playing a lot of sports. I was involved in a lot of sports there. So it meant I could play, you know, university sport for seven years. So it was best of both worlds. Ways, it was an extra bonus. I could yeah study vet and play sport for an extended period of time. But it wasn't, I mean, it was obviously transitionally, the, the workload was quite substantially different. Um, mm. It was a lot more challenging. I'd say, you know, the subjects in sports science were difficult, but the workload wasn't a lot. Um, mm. So you could really easily get a hold of it, whereas veterinary science was was quite a leap. Um, and and I'm not much of a studier, so that was, that was a big challenge. But it's, yeah, it all worked out in the end. Yeah, and do you think that your your passion for wildlife and for for working with animals really helped you to overcome maybe not wanting to study so much? Yeah, no, definitely. Um, yeah, and it's and it's difficult. You know, you know, in in vet school, you you actually really don't know. What well, I mean, foundationally, when we were studying, it's actually really difficult to understand what path you're going to eventually take. So mm. you tend to get so caught up in it when you're in vet school that you almost feel like you've got to have your whole life and career mapped out you know if you if you're not someone that isn't certain they want to do equines or they want to be a specialist surgeon or whatever it is you know I think a lot of people stress and panic about you know what are they going to do after vet school mm. and 
you know, I think it was lucky. I had a lot of distractions while I was studying. Like I said, there was sports and and obviously the social life was really good out there. And it just meant when things sort of finished, it was like, well, you know, come what may and, uh, you know, take your opportunities where they are and, and do whatever you can. But, you know, you're never stuck in anything. And I think that's the first thing you realize when you finish vet school and you actually get going in a, in a career or you start building experience that, I mean, there's really so much opportunity out there. You don't have to ever be stressed that, you know, you're going to be stuck in something. And if you make the decision, you want to be a small animal vet and suddenly you decide you like horses three years down the line. And there's so many stories of that, of how many people have changed their career paths. There's lots of people that just find that they don't enjoy it. And then they go into industry or they go into something like pathology because they don't want to deal with people or anesthesiology or whatever mm. it might be. So, um, yeah, I think it was, uh, you know, passion wise and pathways wise, I sort of just went with the flow and and, and luckily it, it, it sort of worked out eventually. So when did you decide that you wanted to follow the path of exotics? Um, so I'm pretty much from the get-go. I mean, from the zoology background, I always wanted to do, to work in in um, in what we call the bush. Um, you know, it's a bit of a general <laughs> term for any like you know safari area. I mm. guess is the only like translational way I could put it. Uh, so you know, I knew I always wanted to work in the bush, and the only way then was to to want to work with wildlife. But the reality is, it's a very niche and 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 difficult industry to break into. So I sort of had the idea that I'd have to try and find a roundabout way or, or you know, look at doing something else, um, you know, to try and get into it. Mm. So it it sort of worked out in the end. I always knew I wanted to do wildlife, but I expected that it was going to take a lot longer to get into it, put it that way. So how did you end up getting into it? So a lot of, a lot of good luck and really good timing, eh? <laughs> I mean, it's... It really was down to that. I was actually, I'd applied for a residency. I was going to specialize in anesthesiology with a focus in wildlife as a, as like a roundabout way to try and break into the industry. And about three months, because in South Africa, we have to do a community service year after we finish our studies. So we work for a year for the government in the rural sector. And about three months from the end of my community service year, a colleague and friend of mine was working at a at a wildlife practice and they were looking for another vet and I just happened to catch wind of it at exactly the right time they were only looking for a vet in the new year which was perfect for me because I was I was still having to finish up my community service year and uh yeah just it was just by you know I knew I knew him we he was the year ahead of me and yeah so after the interview and that things happened pretty quickly cancelled the the residency back at Ornestepoort which is our veterinary faculty and yeah, sort of jumped straight into wildlife the, the year after. And what was it like going from vet school to then doing it in practice and not only doing it in practice, but what you had always dreamed of doing? No, it was, I mean, it was amazing, but it was also super stressful. We were, we were thrown a little bit in the deep end in a sense. We had a, we, look, in two ways, we were, the, on the first hand, we were incredibly fortunate to probably have one of the, the best mentors in the industry um, Dr. Corbus Roth, who's a, an absolute legend in, in our circles, in the, in the wildlife veterinary circles, not even just in, in South Africa, but across the world. So, you know, to work under him was incredibly fortunate, but he had another business called Wildlife Pharmaceuticals, which manufactures a lot of the drugs and took a lot of his time, mm. which meant myself and my colleague Ben were very often, you know, over the phone, we'd quickly call him for some advice on something we had to do. 
Uh, and, you know, he'd quickly explain it to us, but he was hardly ever available to actually come into the field and, and teach us, you know. So it was a mm. very much a sink or swim scenario. And 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 luckily, we, we managed to to swim, uh, but it was definitely scary and stressful at, for large parts of the, the first two years. Yeah, I can imagine. And for those of my listeners who don't know very much about what it's like to be a wildlife vet, can you give them a brief kind of summary if you can because i know that you guys do a lot uh, of different of different things out there what does a day or a week kind of look like in your job what kind of things yeah, do you get up to if anyone ever has that answer they can tell me because it's <laughs> yeah it, it really i mean it's an over overused and utilized saying in in our industry and i think very many industries you know the whole no two days are the same but it, you know yeah. there's really no there's no other way to put it um no no weeks are the same so it it really does change a lot. We, you know, there's two industries in South Africa. You've got your your commercial sector, where there's a lot of small fenced game farms. So in South Africa, you can you can own game. So it's not a government. When I say game, wildlife species or exotic species. So you can own the animals if they're on your property. There's an inherent value to them, and it's not just all government owned. Let's say like a country like Kenya, where every wildlife species and individual is an asset of the government and they mm. might just reside on your land whereas in south africa there's an inherent value to the species and that is sort of it sort of drives the protection of of you know biodiversity by fencing off areas into these game farms and game farms and small private reserves mm. but a lot of them there's there's a lot of wildlife breeding that happens in south africa so that's sort of what we call the commercial side um you know, there's a lot of uh, it's smaller camped areas. They don't move as 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 big areas. They're breeding for for horn sizes or body sizes or exceptional um, breeding quality, much the same that guys would do with with cows. So there's the commercial sector, um, and then there's the what we call the free roaming or conservation sector, which is your big big open system reserves. You know, which are a hundred to two hundred thousand acres in size, um, some up to four hundred thousand. And, you know, those are just completely free roaming, naturally occurring wildlife. But because even though you've got a space that's, you know, let's say two to three million acres, there is a lot of fencing involved, which means there's a lot of management input that needs to happen. Mm. And we're fortunate to work in that sector on the conservation side. We've, we've probably only 5% of our work is in the commercial sector. Um, so we know it's all with free roaming wildlife and it's it's for different reasons. You know, typically you we've got two seasons an off and, and an on season if you can say so our busy season is between march and october uh, it just coincides with our winter period uh, you know it's it's much cooler which means we can work throughout the day you know most of the species we're working with it's not their breeding season so you're not having to worry about you know really young animals around mm. and then also the the foliage cover because there's no rain and it's the dry season is very is very low so your your visibility from something like a helicopter or a little fixed wing airplane if you're trying to spot mm. a rhino or whatever it is is much better so for that reason that's our busy season and that's where most of our planned work is so planned work ranges from wildlife translocations so we'll move different species to sort of mimic what would be a natural migration if no fences ever existed so you know if you're if you've got a small little fenced reserve that's, you know, 10,000 acres and you've got some lions on there, 
you're eventually going to have an inbred population because, mm. you know, naturally when we weren't around and there weren't many fences, you had lions that were walking all across the country. With fences now, that just cannot happen. With fences and people, it sort of blocks all of that. So you have to artificially do that. So translocations is a big part where, we, where we're just maintaining genetic diversity on all these small properties. So you'll be moving, you know, individuals out of one reserve to another one and bringing in new genetics into that reserve. Um, that's a big part of what we do. We do a lot of um, research, so we'll immobilize different species which are being monitored for research purposes. So we'll fit satellite tracking units, whether that be collars or something like a horn pod on a rhino or a satellite tracking ear tag. Uh, there's a lot of entities that are dealing with a lot of the endangered, um, vulnerable and critically endangered species in the area. So they get monitored quite heavily. Um, escaped animals, uh, wounded animals through poaching attempts, whether that be by gunshot or what we also have a lot of in, in Southern Africa is wire snaring, which is sort of the placement of a, it's difficult to explain, you know, without like a video or something, yeah. but it's a, a slip knot made out of um, braided cable that, you know, they'll, they'll place a whole lot of these slipknot loops um, on these little animal trails with the idea that as an animal walks through there, it tightens around the neck or around the body and then they trap there and they either die mm. from suffocation or, or when the guys come there and find them, then they'll kill them. And it's usually for for bushmeat, um, mm. you know, just illegal meat markets. And very often you get non-target species that'll walk through those cable snares. You know, things like your carnivores will often go through there. Um, you know, you often get elephants with snares around their legs and things like that. So you know, we'll, we have to treat animals like that quite a bit, um, especially at certain times of the year. And then unfortunately, rhino dehorning has become a, a very large aspect of what we do at the moment. It's, uh, yeah, unfortunately, the rhino poaching crisis in, in South Africa is enormous. And it's just one of the mitigation measures that we're trying to reduce the losses. Um, and, you know, that's just essentially immobilizing the rhino and removing their horn just so that you you make them less of a target for a would-be poacher. Um, and that's a large part of, of what we do in the busy season as well. So yeah. yeah, there's a lot of stuff, some disease things, you know, every now and again, if there's a disease outbreak, a um, bit of pathology and that, but because we're in the open system, it's more natural in a sense. So you try and be hands-off as much as possible. And only if there's been sort of artificial human impact, like a poaching case or something like that, or it's escaped, then you typically try not to intervene. And the same applies to a disease process unless it's it's something that's introduced or of particular concern. What is it like um being a vet working around such I mean, I don't I don't necessarily want to say a volatile area, but when I'm when we're talking about poaching, you know, there's people in your area who are actively trying to, you know, harm or kill the animals that you're trying to care for. What is what is that like? Look, I mean, it's uh, we've never crossed paths with a poacher, put it that way. And, and no one really does, except for an anti-poaching unit to, mm. you know, after hearing a gunshot or, or finding tracks of these guys coming into the property, you know, they might come across them because they're actively going and looking. But, you know, when we're busy with operations, you've, you've got helicopters in the air, you've got airplanes in the air. There's so many eyes on the ground and in the mm. sky. It would be crazy for a poacher to even think of trying to, to you know, try and do something there. So... From that aspect, it's not even something that that crosses our mind. Um, we obviously deal with the the fallback from it, but you know, crossing paths or, or feeling like you're in the same area or something like mm. that, it doesn't really happen. It doesn't really happen here. I mean, in other countries where we've worked, absolutely, you know, there's um, there's definitely concern that you can come across, you know, military issues or rebel issues or. Mm. 
you know, poaching issues, but but certainly not here in South Africa. Yeah, it was something that when we visited Tanzania, there was in the Ngorongoro area, because they're very focused on their rhino conservation as well, there was a big um, memorial area of rangers who had uh, lost their lives defending <coughs> rhinos from poaching. Um, yes. and, it, and it really, really moved me, you know, as someone, you know, we're all animal lovers. The majority of people listening to this podcast are also animal lovers. And to me, honestly, that was just the most, almost the most noble thing that someone could do, you know, literally giving up their life to defend an endangered species like that. It just, yeah, it was incredibly moving to see. Yeah, for sure. There's a lot of guys doing amazing work out there. That's, um, yeah, they really don't get a lot of recognition for no, it. No, absolutely not. Um, so it was wonderful to be able to, you know, read their names and 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 put names to those people who who had really given everything for for conservation. Um, and yourself and a lot of your team and people that you've worked with have been very involved in rhino conservation specifically, and we're going to get into that a little bit. Uh, you mentioned briefly there the dehorning project. Can you explain a little bit more about what that entails? Yeah, so essentially what we'll do is, um, you know, once a reserve decides to dehorn, we typically do an an all-out process. So we'll dehorn every single rhino on the property. Uh, you know, you don't want to leave any horned individuals because we've seen enough of the cases of where we've maybe missed one or two rhino during an operation because you just don't see them mm. and then they pop up um, and due to whatever it might be inside information or intel you know those rhino get poached out pretty quickly so there's a massive target on their back if they're a horned rhino in a, in a dehorned population so the first thing is to focus on getting all of them it's it's a really huge scale operation um this year, I think it was in May, we did about 200 rhino across three weeks in one of the open system reserves here. And what that involves is, is literally sort of a massive team of people. You know, there's a helicopter, there's a little airplane that gets in the air and helps to spot the rhino. And once the fixed wing spots a rhino, the helicopter goes in with a vet in the air. You put a, a dart into the rhino to immobilize it. And, and maybe you have a group, maybe more than one and then you'll dart all of them at the same time. And then you've got what we had was two vets on the ground. So you've got two ground teams, just if you have rhinos that split up or they go to different mm. areas, um, you know, you've got people in capacity to deal with, with all of them. And then there's, you know, there's probably another five, six really critically important people in each of those teams as well, you know, collecting data, helping stabilize animals, helping with just simple manpower to move them around. You've got to have government officials present, um, you know, who take control of the horns. You've got to have mm. security guys there. So, yeah, it's just a really massive process. And the and the concept and idea behind it is simply to you want to reduce the, the reward, essentially. So, you know, obviously the reward for a poacher coming onto a property is is shooting a rhino and getting that horn. And obviously the more horn or the bigger the horn, the bigger, you know, income there is for that mm. person. So. You're trying to reduce that reward as much as possible by removing the bulk of the of the horn, um, down to a point where it's um, safe and you and you haven't hit any live tissue or anything. Much the same as if you trimmed your nail, you wouldn't want to trim it down to your nail bed. Otherwise, that's where it becomes painful and it starts mm -hmm. to bleed. And it's exactly the same for a rhino. So, unfortunately, you can't remove the entire thing. You have to, you know, there is a little stump that's left. Um, you know, just for for their safety and comfort, you you cannot go further than that. Um. 
And then, you know, the, the reserve security has to constantly try and, and keep improving. You know, you can't just go into an area, dehorn a rhino population and expect that that's going to make all the difference if the reserve security is not up to scratch. So that essentially provides the risk for a poacher is how good is the security on the property? Mm. What are the chances of them getting caught? What are the chances of them ending up in a gunfight and possibly being shot? Um, you know, is there big game species on the reserve? You know, could they run into elephant and rhino, um, you know, things like buffalo and lion? Is it, does it make it extra dangerous? So they look at all those risks and they're like, well, it's worth it because we get this massive reward when we get the horn. But if you take the horn away and you and you make you make sure that the security just constantly improves, then the risk gets higher and the reward gets lower. And you're just trying to ultimately unbalance that whole ratio to a point where someone that's looking at that reserve is thinking it's just not worth it you know and unfortunately what that often means is it's it's just a pressure shift so Mm. you very often will be on on a bunch of reserves and and the guys will they will often shift the pressure to to other sections of the country um but it just means that you can try and focus resources then on particular areas, which I think is something that hopefully in future, you know, is, is something that comes more to the forefront is, you know, knowing if certain reserves haven't dehorned or they or the regrowth is getting to the point where they have to be dehorned again, you know, then they're all sort of helping each other out. Um, but for the most part, uh, you know, the reserves that we've been busy with in this area, it's been exceptionally, exceptionally successful. Um, mm. There's no two ways about it. It's been a big game changer for many of them. Uh, unfortunately, it is a continual thing. Rhino horns grow back, uh, you know, within 18 months to 24 months, there's enough horn there on that rhino to make them a, a target again. Oh, well, that's fast. Yeah, it's it's very quick. I mean, they grow they grow decently, eh? Yeah, well, I mean, it's just made out the same as our nails, <laughs> you know. So of course, yeah, well, of course, exactly. it's going to go back. Um, yeah, it is such a drastic. It's it's so sad that it it's resorted to this to such a drastic measure that you have to completely try and you know take the horn away to take to take that prize away from from the poachers. What is it like being so close to these animals, knowing how endangered they are, knowing how vulnerable they are? How does that feel for you personally as a vet being involved in projects like this? Um, look, I mean, first of all, it's a great privilege to be involved in projects like this. Um, you know, you're working with amazing people every day. It's uh, you really feel like at least with something like dehorning that it that it is making a positive difference. Mm-hmm. And and you know that, you know, if you're dehorning a population on a reserve, that anti-poaching team on the reserve and everyone on there can can rest and sleep a little easier. Yeah. Um so, you know, that's really a positive thing and, and working with, uh, you know, especially black rhino, which are critically endangered is a, mm. is a huge privilege. That's a phenomenal species to work with. And it's, uh, it's obviously a fortunate position to be in that you can not only be working with them, but, but be in a position to be hopefully contributing to, to positive results in terms of their, their conservation. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's awesome. It's also um, humbling. I mean, you know, the more you do it, you sort of get de- desensitized to it. But every now and again, you know, you, you get an absolutely prehistoric animal, you know, the 30, 35 year old rhino, that's just got mm. an enormous horn. And you think, you know, it's been, it's been living with this horn for, for 30 years. And you can just see it's got so much character and there's these little notches in the horns and it's worn down on certain sides. And then, you know, you take it off and you wake that rhino up and you see it walk off and it's, it, it yeah, it catches you out every now and again. Um, yeah. You know, you, you might do three, four hundred and then every now and again, you're like, geez, you know, what are we doing? This is actually yeah. ridiculous that we've gotten to this point. 
Yeah. Did the rhinos ever show, like, obviously, you know, you, you take a lot of care so that they're not in pain or they're not going to, you know, suffer after the horns come off, obviously. But did they, is there ever any kind of after effects? Because, you know, they, they'll be using the horn in their daily lives. You know, like you said, if there was a 30 odd year old animal who's had this long horn for, for years and years, suddenly it's gone. Do you ever see any behavioral changes? Well, look, that was the thing, you know, it's, it's obviously been a big concern is, is, you know, what are they using the horn for, first of all, and mm. uh, you know, what is what effect is it going to have? Are we going to suddenly see, you know, massive losses because they can't defend their calves against lions yeah. or something? Um, you know, are they going to have issues in territorial fights? You know, what's going to happen there? So, look, from from most of the stuff that's been collected over the last four to five years in the areas that we've been working in, there does not seem to be any major negative effects from what we've seen. It's still early days. You know, you're talking about a long-lived species. Um, we're talking in the scope of five years. You're talking in a species that can live for 30 years. So, yeah. No, I think we'll only see really negative or positive or or, or whatever effects in in a decade or so. You know, maybe maybe even a bit longer than that. Um, and then you just got to hope that you've made the right decision and and taken everything to con into consideration. You know, and ultimately, to put it in perspective, one of the reserves we dehorned in in about six years, they'd lost sixty percent of their rhino population. Oh, wow. So. You look and you think, okay, well, if we dehorn and there is some sort of negative thing where, you know, you lose three calves a year to a lion and, and maybe you lose a territorial bull to a fight where he wouldn't have lost or, you know, something, whatever strange yeah. thing it might be, the numbers are just never going to get to the point that poaching is. Yeah, So, absolutely. you know, if the poaching rate is at zero, but your loss rate through dehorning is, 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 is negligible, then it's just, it's something that it's a risk you would have to carry. But yeah. at this stage, it's not something we are seeing, which is really positive. Um, but I think it's going to take some time and and really more intensive monitoring, which we we pretty much putting in now recently is is um, you know making sure that we've got ear notch identifiers for like almost every single rhino we we dehorn in this open system, just so that there's better monitoring, better accountability, and understanding. Like if you see that rhino again, you know where's that calf that we saw it with, you know, a couple months ago. Are people reporting that more rhino calves are being eaten by lions, whatever it might be? Mm. And it also becomes difficult because you've got an absolutely bustling lion population off this side of the world, which is <laughs> way beyond its carrying capacity. So then you're also like, well, are there just too many lions and are they mm. finding other things to eat? So it's complicated. But for the most part, the long and the short of it is that um, so far, there doesn't seem to be any major negative impacts from dehorning that have got us overly concerned. I mean, it's undeniable that this is an incredible project um, that you're involved in. But for your career so far as a wildlife vet, obviously, this has to be one of the highlights. But do you have any others? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's difficult to to pin it down to anything in particular. You know, there's there's lots of highlights there and there. Um, you know, lots of feel-good moments, if you can say that, and certain rescues and big projects and whatever it might mm -hmm. be. I'd say at this stage, though, just for the, you know, the aspect of where we were working and the people we were working with, um, forest elephant collaring in the Congo was a very, very unique experience. Um, I was way out of my depth there in the, in the forests there. Um, just a very special species to work with that not many people get to work with. So that was, mm -hmm. that's definitely up there. Um, 
We were, I was involved with some giraffe satellite tagging in Tanzania, actually in the Serengeti and in Tarangiri, which was extremely um, special just to, to work in those places. Yeah. And then there was a massive elephant translocation this year in Malawi with African parks, which we were, myself and my colleague were the, the head vets on. And that was just yeah an absolute privilege to be involved in. It was an enormous project, um, really incredible organizations and people to be working with. So yeah, I mean, there's there's so many highlights, but I'd, I'd say, you know, just straight quickly off the top of my head, those are, those are pretty up there. It's such worthwhile work that you're doing and, you know, so actively involved in the conservation of such, you know, needy animals. If people are listening and they want to be able to follow along with your journey or what you're doing or find more information, where can they find you? Um, I think the easiest is probably Instagram. Um, yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm not I'm not on too much else, so it's probably the the best place. Um, yeah, and I mean, you know, any any vet students um, that are interested in an internship or anything like that are welcome to to reach out. Even you know, newly qualified vets. Uh, we do run a bit of an unofficial internship program. Um, and if if not, you know, if we fully booked or whatever it is, we can point them in directions of of really mm. worthwhile and reputable entities and colleagues of ours. So, yeah, Instagram's probably the the easiest, eh? Definitely. And all of your links uh, will be in the description box of this episode. So if anyone is interested in learning a little bit more, you can find it there. But Joel, thank you so much for taking the time out of your incredibly busy schedule. People listening will not know for how, how long I have been <laughs> hounding you to try and get you on this podcast. No, this um yeah, I, I, and I think I can't remember if I if in the beginning I I think I even said I was like this is going to be really difficult to try and do because mm -hmm. I just know how it goes. Um, so no, I'm I'm chuffed we managed to make it work. Well done for for pursuing it consistently <laughs> and pushing me. Yeah, and we finally got it done. So I think yeah, that's a that's a big tick. Oh, I'm so happy that we finally got to sit down um and chat. So thank you so much for being on. No, you're welcome, Hazel. Thank you very much for having me. And yeah, I mean, thanks a lot for hosting such an awesome podcast. And hopefully it just goes from strength to strength. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you enjoyed this week's episode, then please don't forget to like, rate and subscribe. And I will see you all next week.